Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I'm your host, Eric Fleming. And amidst all the news that we're getting about Afghanistan and Governor Cuomo leaving his dog at the governor's mansion when he left and um, passage of a budget bill to, uh, to help with the infrastructure package. It was a story that there were a couple of stories that kind of got out there, but didn't get the attention or maybe I just missed it when they, they talked about it. Um, but I'm going to devote this show about them and It just kind of reminds me the theme. There was a song that Bob Dylan wrote back in the day, said the times they are changing. And to paraphrase that, uh, based on what this podcast is talking about, it's more specifically the numbers they are changing. Right. And, uh, since I live in Georgia, I don't really deal a lot with local Georgia politics. There's a major reason for that, but overall, um, there's something I want to talk about as far as Georgia goes, as far as voting. And, um, so let's start with the first number. Right. So the first number is 58%. Right. So at number 58 comes from the 2020 census. As we know, and if you've been following in your local states, what have you, especially in the South, uh, the redistricting committees of the respective legislatures are meeting. Uh, because they have their official data to start redrawing legislative lines as well as judicial lines in some states. And so, and the congressional districts, right? Because earlier this year, I think in April, uh, you know which states gained legislative you know congressional legislative seats in which states lost right so now the legislative redistricting committees are in the process of taking their state's data and redrawing the lines and of course that has major implications as far as how the 435 members of the house of representatives are elected um and in an earlier podcast, I cited, for example, Texas gained two seats, but those two seats were in areas where minority population went up, right? So we may see another Latino congressman and another African-American congressman from the state of Texas, for example. Um, so those lines are being drawn. Of course, that's why there's a big fight. Uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder has been leading a grassroots effort uh, 
to change the way redistricting is done, to take it out of the hands of the legislature and put it in independent commissions, um, but also to serve as a watchdog to see how those states like Texas, who still have Republican rule in the legislature, how they're going to apportion those congressional districts and uh, and so forth, right? And we talked about it before, uh, you know, and then my experience with all that. And I just remember when we were in the legislature, when we had a redistricting I, at the time that I served after the 2000 census, we had the big controversy. And for those in Mississippi, if I say the words tornado plan, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, and eventually, we, we, that was the year we lost the congressional seat. We had five, and we ended up getting four, and we're still at four in Mississippi. And um, we ended up having to combine a congressional district, and that had a major race between two incumbent congressmen and the Republican incumbent congressman won that race. Uh, neither one of them now, of course, are in Congress. But um, so having been in the middle of that, understanding that process and understanding you're in the majority, uh, you get to dictate how things go. Uh, in Mississippi's case, we had presented a plan and federal judges shot it down and created the plan that ended up or accepted a plan and ended up pitting the two congressmen against each other. Those two, our plan was going to pit two other congressmen, uh, primarily uh, Gene Taylor and Chip Pickering, but it ended up being Chip Pickering and Ronnie Shouse. Anyway, getting back to the census number 58, right? So that is the percentage of white population in the United States. Uh, and that is significant because for the first time in the history of the United States, the white population is below 60%. Just 10 years ago, the white population was around 64%. And now it's down to 58, which is kind of at a faster pace than what was projected. It was projected that people of color would be the majority of the population by 2040. And at the rate it's going now, the white population dropped literally 9% in 10 years. So at that pace, 2030 census, 10 years earlier, people of color will be in the majority. 10 years. From now, we'll be talking, we could be talking about a country where the white population is not in the majority anymore, right? So if, you, if you've been following the politics of America, which we really can't help, whether you like politics or not, most, excuse me, most of our news and most everything that's happening is being dictated by the national politics 
right now. The divisions in the country, uh, the attitudes that people have toward government entities like the police or uh, the Internal Revenue Service or whatever, all that is being driven nationally. And it's being driven by these stark numbers, right? This is a, this is a major, major deal. And this is part of why you're seeing this legislation being drafted about who can vote and how they can vote and where they can vote and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you still see secretary of states and especially in Southern states trying to purge voting rolls and all those kind of things, which is going to lead to my other numbers story. But I just want people, especially black people, to put it into context as the dynamics, because it's other people of color that, of course, the Latino population is booming. Uh, and between the black population, Latino population in America, those are the two largest blocks after the white population, right? And then you have uh, the Asian American Pacific Islander population. And that's basically the, the blocks of population in the United States, right? Those four groups. And some people are saying, well, the numbers are different because the census is now being more specific, especially with Latinos, because one of the first questions they ask you is, are you of Hispanic or do you identify as Hispanic or Latino, right? And if you say no, then they'll say, well, what do you define yourself as? Do you define yourself as white or whatever? If you define yourself as Latino, that takes you out of the white and African-American uh, columns, even though you may look white or you may look black. Once you identify as Latino, you're identified as Latino. So a Dominican, uh, who may have been classified as black is now considered a Latino. A Cuban who may have been considered white is now considered Latino. And so that gives a more accurate depiction of the population diversity, right? Um, that's one theory that's out there. And then the other theory is that birth rates among white women are decreasing. Well, that's not a theory, that's a statistical fact. And so the combination of all those things and plus maybe some other factors are leading to the fact that the white population is decreasing, which changes the dynamics of the national politics because now, and definitely 10 to 20 years from now, we will see more people of color in positions of power. It may be 20 years from now, more that, that dream that I talked about, right? Where a black man and a, or woman, or may run as a Democrat and a black man or woman may run as a Republican for president of the United States, right? Or anything it could be somebody from, you know, that identifies as Indian and Asian, you know, South, South Asian uh, running against somebody like 
like Kamala Harris running against a Latino like Julian Castro. And we saw that in a Democratic primary, but we may see that in a general election where one would be a Republican, one would be a Democrat. So that's why those numbers are significant is because America is becoming more diverse. And so as America becomes more diverse, so does national policy, right? And national mindset. And if you give people of color more political power, as, as I always point out, our historical model is the reconstruction period when black people first got real political power in the United States, you started seeing some major, major reforms, right? And I was explaining to my wife, you know, about the dynamics of Republicanism in the United States, you know, the radical Republican. I told her if this was the 1880s, Bernie Sanders would be a Republican, right? Because that was the dynamic back then. The Democrats were more conservative, primarily led by the Southerners, right? That had major influence in the party politics. And the Republicans were the radicals, right? So, and that was kind of upbringing that led to Theodore Roosevelt and so on and so forth. So anyway, um, that's why that's really, really major and really, really key uh, for us to understand that. And it's also major and key as to why a lot of the rhetoric that's coming out is playing to that fear of the white population shrinking. Uh, And you hear people say, white people say that they're no longer relevant or that, uh, you know, they're losing their their status or, um, and they're starting to take on these issues and make everything an issue, whether it's wearing a mask or uh, what holidays we celebrate, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, It's all being driven and the census data confirms why it's being driven. Um, And it's a shame that people feel as though that if they can't be in the majority, that they can't be heard or they can't maintain power. But people of color have been dealing with that since the inception of this nation. And if you really look at it, people of color never really had a full political voice until 56, 50, yeah, 56 years ago, 55. Right. So now you're you're seeing this backlash and you're hearing these fears and, and people they're exacerbating all this stuff. Um and and that's why even though all these other events, and we talked about this on the last year, that all these events are uh, happening. Uh, you know, and, and the threat to a democracy is, is real, right? Because of that fear. It's a shame that, that we have to go through that. But as a process, 
we've got to deal with the backlash. The backlash is here. and It's not going to go away quietly. And we have to continue to push the envelope to make sure that we don't have a repeat of what happened at the end of Reconstruction. For literally a decade, and and you've heard me say this before, but it's very important, especially for Black people to hear this. For literally a decade, we were the driving force in American politics. We were the ones that were creating all this new policy. And because of our allegiance with the Republican Party, we were getting federal policy that protected us. I mean, the federal government created a bank for Black people. There was literally a federal department to deal with Black people, right? And so, you know, some of the names, I mean, Freedmen's Bureau, that's what we were. We were newly freed men and women. So that made sense. But like the schools that were created, right? Because we were treated as property, right? The first trade schools that started developing during the Civil War and, you know, came out of, you know, going into Reconstruction were called contraband schools right and so we were contraband we were considered contraband because we were no longer with our rightful owner and since we weren't officially free we were considered contraband right anything that you have that's not yours or that you sell that is not yours is considered contraband right and so that's the term they used on black people then and so you know, I, I had a privilege. We actually have a historical area in Mississippi that's called the Contraband School in, in uh, Corinth, Mississippi. And so you got a good idea. And that was a, a school where they taught, you know, escaped slaves or newly freed slaves trade skills, which led to basically the development of the HBCUs. Because at that point, instead of federal contraband schools, which were run by the military, now you were having private black institutions developed with the support of the church, primarily the Methodist and the Baptist church, right? And even the black Methodists, which is the AMEs. And that public policy led to most Southern constitutions saying that public education was a constitutional right. So those are the kind of things that I think that people need to understand. And I, and I stress this all the time and I'll stress it until I'm no longer able to, that you have to understand the history of this nation. You have to understand the history of America to understand why certain things are in place, why certain places have certain names, why the makeup of certain states are what they are, right? And then you can strategize from that point forward and change the history or change the future, right? So that 100 years from now, people will look and say, oh, so this is what they did to address the issues that happened in 1619, started in 1619, right? As far as black people. So I I think people 
you know, you get a lot of information, you get a lot of news, and you have to discern which news is important, right? It is important, and I stressed that last show, to understand the dynamics of the Afghan, Afghanistan situation, or even the Haiti situation, right? Or other things that are going on in the world, because again, you don't want to lose focus on those things because they have an impact on America as a whole, especially this role in, in the world. But you don't want it to be a distraction and forget about the issues that you are specifically dealing with here in this country. Right. So that's that's one number. Uh that I think. And, and then, you know, again, so I can put it into even more context, I had mentioned that birth rates among white women have decreased. Well, that was one of the main reasons why this pro-choice, pro-life debate got started. As progressive as Theodore Roosevelt claimed to be, right, he was the one who said in 1901 that abortion was genocide to the white race not to america but to the white race in specifics right and so the pro-life folks have carried that mantra throughout and you know the religious community has embraced that especially the evangelical community and 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 up until 20 years ago the black church really had that philosophy too. Uh, well, I'd say 30, right? Because you started seeing the change like in the 80s. But by the 1990s, the black church had become more progressive on issues like abortion and even HIV AIDS, right? But when you looked at polling data from back then, older black people were more, cons were more conservative. Right. And especially those who identify themselves as Christian. Now, not so much. Um, it's not like 80, 90 percent, but it's the, the, the paradigm has shifted. Right. And so that's why that's still an issue. Right. And that's why that's it was important for Donald Trump to have all those Supreme Court justice picks so they could go back and deal with the abortion issue because historically abortion has always been identified as a negative in the white community as far as them maintaining their population dominance in the United States, right? And you can argue about morality and all that stuff, and that's fine. But that argument really should be in the church, in the church community, and not and not into the political spectrum, right? Because that's an individual thing. I see people now with the whole mass thing saying, my body, my choice, which is what women have been saying as far as the abortion issue for decades, right? And that's always been kind of a identify as a liberal manta, mantle, but now that this mass, these states are saying you got to put these masks on during this COVID pandemic, 
conservatives are adopting that and saying it's my body, it's my face. If I don't want to wear a mask, I shouldn't have to. Which is kind of interesting. You're more liberal when it comes to wearing a mask than you are about a woman's reproductive freedom. But that's it's going way in the weeds, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't really want to get too deep off in that, but y'all see the irony of that, right? And so, but all that is being driven by these census numbers. This is this is a reality, right? And um, it's 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 going to be over the next decade. Very interesting to watch how the political landscape is starting to change. And so that leads to the second set of numbers. Specifically, like I wanted to highlight Georgia. uh, Because that plays into the narrative even more so more locally and more specifically into why those national numbers are significant. And we'll get into that on the other side. And so we're back. And so before we went to break, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about some other numbers. And I wanted to highlight Georgia. So it was in the news that Georgia now has one of the highest voting registration rates in the United States. 95% of the state's eligible registered voters are registered. There's only like eight other states, including my home state of Illinois, that have a higher percentage of its registered voters eligible registered voters, eligible voters registered, right? So 95% of the people that are eligible to vote by age in the state of Georgia are registered. And of course, you know, Georgia played a significant part in Joe Biden becoming president. He won the state by merely 12,000 votes. And it was leading up to that. He was talking about how Trump had won by such a narrow margin that if you had just had more registered voters in the Atlanta metro area, Hillary Clinton would have beat Donald Trump, right? And that led also to the controversy with Stacey Abrams when she ran for governor and Brian Kemp, who was the secretary of state, who beat her to be governor. Uh how he had purged all these names and all that. And the argument was if he hadn't done that or they hadn't taken those kind of uh, steps that not only would she have probably won, but Hillary Clinton probably would have won the state of Georgia in 2016. Right. And so, um, even before then, but it's like 
you know, um, for Abrams to come that close, it was basically a numbers game in 2018. And so with Georgia being now one of the top 10 states registered, that plays a major role. And so now even when you talk about the redistricting process and you talk about the, the, the reapportionment of districts and so on, congressional districts, state legislative districts, um, it even becomes more of an issue. And, and there was an announcement because, you know, there's going to be a major Senate race next year, along with the statewide elections in Georgia. Uh, and that announcement was that Herschel Walker, the Heisman Trophy winner from the University of Georgia, uh, native son of Georgia, who's a big Donald Trump supporter, even to the point where he is one of those people saying that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, right? He announced that he's running for the United States Senate. And a lot of people feel that folks like Kelly Leffler, who served as the interim senator uh, and lost to Raphael Warnock in the special election, will not run because now there's somebody that actually is a Trump a true Trump supporter who has a true Trump track record is going to run the Republican primary. And the only person that probably will have a chance against them will be the agricultural commissioner here in the state of Georgia. Um, so, uh, but the scenario is being set up where there's going to be two black men running for the United States Senate in Georgia. Just, and so there's a possibility. Well, if that scenario happens, then Georgia will become the second Southern state to have a black U.S. Senator in this time, this post-Reconstruction era, post-Civil Rights Act era, or Voting Rights Act era, I should say. Uh, the other being Tim Scott, who is a Republican from South Carolina, right? And that's huge. Georgia could actually have a Republican running for governor, where it could be a, a scenario where Vernon Jones, who was a Democratic state senator for years, but he became a disaffected with the Democratic Party here in Georgia and joined the Trump train, right? He's got a legitimate shot of being the Republican nominee for governor. So if Stacey Abrams runs for governor again, there's a possibility that Georgia will have its first black governor. Could be Vernon Jones, could be Stacey Abrams, but it will be a black governor. So can you imagine Georgia just in the span of a decade, right? Throughout his whole history and all that stuff. Just this look at from... 2010 to 2020, the reality is, or 2012 to 2022, the reality is, is that the state of Georgia, a Southern state could possibly have a black man as a U.S. Senator and a black person as governor. 
That's why all these numbers are important. And if you look at it, one of the major contributing factors, whether you like her or not, is Stacey Abrams. Ever since she has aspired to be governor, right, when she was a minority leader in the House of Representatives in Georgia, she has committed and created an organization we know as Fair Fight that specifically went to register as many people as possible, especially black people, right? And so when you see that Georgia now is one of the top 10 states as far as registered voters, even with the current Secretary of State, who's not a fan of Donald Trump, Donald Trump's not a fan of his, he's still trying to purge about 100,000 folks. The reality is that Georgia is now... You see the reward of Stacey Abrams' work, of Fair Fight's work, right? And other organizations, other people like Latasha Brown, other people that participated alongside those efforts, right, to get people registered to vote in the state of Georgia. So you see that. So that's a model that other states, not just southern states, but other states will follow, right? Because you you're seeing the results of that. Now, I'm going to throw out another number, right? 267,000. So, 95% of Georgia's population is registered. It's roughly about 387,000 people then that are not registered to vote in the state. Something like that, right? Of those 387,000, right, that are not registered to vote, um, I, I said 267, I meant 265,000, right? So 200, over 265,000 eligible people are really not eligible because they have felony convictions. They've been incarcerated. So of the people who are not registered to vote, over 65% of them are not eligible to be registered to vote because they've been incarcerated which has been a major issue. And that was highlighted in the documentary 13th, uh, how that clause where it says that slavery was abolished in the 13th amendment, except if you're incarcerated, right? So the premise of that documentary was showing how there has been an emphasis after the 13th Amendment was ratified to put black people in jail, especially black men, which takes them off the voting rolls. And in Mississippi, we fought that battle um, and still fighting it, where there were like eight in the 1890 Constitution, there was created eight felony offenses that would take away your right to vote, uh, primarily geared toward what they thought black 
people would do, what kind of crimes they would commit, right? And then the attorney general, uh, the, one of the longest serving attorney generals in the state, a guy named Mike Moore, who a lot of black people liked, he expanded the 22 in an opinion and basically broke down the eight into subcategories. So it's basically like 22 offenses that can take away your voting rights now instead of just eight. The eight are constitutional. The, the additional ones were, like I said, based off an AG's opinion. So that leads you to the process in Mississippi where you got to literally have a bill introduced after you served your time and served and paid your restitution. Uh, and the ideal time is like five years that they'll seriously look at it that you've been out. You have to have a bill introduced to get your voting rights back. Right. So, and then other states, you, some say you just can't get it back, like in Florida, you, you can't. Right. Although I think they changed that, and I've got to go back and look. I know they dealt with the issue. Um, but that was the kind of a big thing in Florida that you could not, and I think they took some steps to remedy that. Nonetheless, that's a high percentage of ineligible voters. So it's kind of like voter registration is kind of like employment, right? You can never achieve 100% employment because there are just some people that cannot work for whatever reason, whether it's health, physical health, mental health, whatever, they cannot work, right? And so you'll never achieve 100% employment. So the way laws are set up dealing with incarceration, you can never achieve 100% voter registration because of the laws that basically say, if you've ever been incarcerated, you can't vote or you gotta do all these particular steps to get your voting rights back, which is different than when you first went and signed. Because in Georgia, if you get a driver's license or in Mississippi, in most states, you can register to vote. In Mississippi, if you buy a house, they give you a voter registration form, right? So, um, so that that's kind of an important thing, and so that's why it's important to continue the work to deal with how incarceration is used as a tool to suppress black voting. Now, there's a caveat in Mississippi, and I'm not familiar with the Georgia law, and I apologize for that because I really should be on that a little more. But there's a caveat in Mississippi was that in 1890, drug use outside of Civil War veterans was not really a big deal. And since most blacks were not fighting for the Confederacy in the Civil War, never really came up in the thought process. And even with the expansion that Mike Moore did, uh, it didn't catch drug charges. So there are certain crimes that if you are incarcerated for in the state of Mississippi, you don't lose your right to vote. And most of those are like drug charges. 
So this brother, for example, that just passed, a good friend of mine, Lee Vance, who was sheriff in Hines County, would allow people to come in and have inmates who fell under that loophole to vote absentee or to register to vote, right? Um, so, you know, and then there's been legislation pushed by just about every black caucus, whether they have one member or 60 <laughs> to in each state to change the law to say, well, at least if it's a first time offender and they're out, they should be able to get their voting rights back at the very least, right? I'm harping on that because I want people to understand these numbers are important. And even with those laws and even with the attempts by certain groups of legislatures to limit participation, right? Then, you know, black people still have been able to register. Now, hitting uh, participation, right? Even though Georgia has a 95, now they have a 95% voter registration rate. Only 67% of the people who are registered to vote show up. Now, two thirds of the population voting, it's not bad, it's over half about this two thirds, right? I mean, I, you know, it's not, it's not a terrible thing, but it's not a hundred. And so for those people who are registered to vote, who are not voting, first of all, you're going to be targeted by a secretary of state like Brad Raffensperger or a former like Kemp or any one of these Secretary of States, especially in the southern states where black population plays a major role in the elections. Right. If you don't vote, you can lose that privilege and then you have to go through the process of re-registering. You lose that right. I'm sorry. And then you go through the process of re-registering. And it could be a process, could be a hassle, whatever you want to do. And if they're changing laws to make it tougher for you to register, you could fall into that trap if you don't take advantage of the fact that you vote. And I've always stressed that the president of the United States is very important and every U.S. citizen should vote for that. But even more so, if you had to choose between voting for your local city council and your mayor and president, please go and vote for your mayor. Right. Vote for your city council people. Those turnouts should always be as high, if not higher than the presidential numbers, because those people actually make the decisions about your city, your town, where you live. You're not going to call the president of the United States about a pothole. You're not going to call the president of the United States about a traffic light not functioning. You're going to call your local elected officials. So it's probably a good idea to get out and vote for the ones that you want and pay attention to that even more so than the president, right? And again, U.S. citizens, everybody should vote in the presidential election. And we kind of do that, right? Our highest turnouts are always presidential election turnouts. 
tragedy is that the people who are closest to you that can impact your life on an everyday basis, we don't make that a priority. So that's why you have this category of super voters, those people that vote in every election and most politicians target those people first and then have a strategy for the masses, right? Effective campaign, you got to register new, try to register new voters. You got to get the voters that you know are going to come on your side. And then you have mass appeal to convince people that haven't voted or haven't registered to support you. Right. Those are the three tiers. Registration, super voter contact and mass appeal. Right. So. Even though it's great to have 95 percent. Of your population registered, if only 67 percent are participating, you still have a problem. Yet and still. Georgia could still have. By the end of 2022, a black U.S. senator and a black governor in a state that is still majority white. But as every other trend, especially at the national level, that's shrinking. Oh, by the way, the Georgia rate of voting is less than the national rate. The national rate is 68%. So Georgia being at 67 is below that, right? So it's, it's a good idea to get these people on the rolls, but you got to get them to participate. They got to come out. And if they do come, then that 95 number becomes even more significant. And that 58%, which basically flips that people of color consist of 42% of the population nationally, that 42% becomes more of a greater force, especially at the local level. And when I say local, I'm not just talking about your city elections. I'm talking about these legislative seats too. Yes, the very seats that we talked about where these people are elected and every 10 years they make a decision about how the districts are going to be drawn, congressional and their own. It's 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 a puzzle, but it's not really complicated to connect the pieces. You just got to pay attention and you got to and you got to take into consideration these numbers and and you got to take advantage of these numbers. Right. Bottom line is, if you've got the power and the power is coming to you, you've got to wield it responsibly. You got to take advantage of it or else you are going to allow people whose power is diminishing to continue to have dominion over you, right? And so people will make that argument, you know, they say, when you hear somebody say that, it's like, oh, well, you're, you're talking about this supremacy thing and you're talking, no, we're talking about American politics. It's how it works. You have the majority of the votes you get to dictate the policy for however long you get it. Most of the time it's four years, right? And we've seen that ebb and flow in our lifetime of Democratic presidents and Republican presidents and Democratic-led Congress and Republican-led Congress and Democratic-led state legislatures and Republican state-led state legislatures, right? 
we we see that dynamic and we see it flip flop a lot. That's because people get energized and they make a decision. And the more people get energized, the more say so they will have in how their their elected officials look and how they will act. Right. Because in the state of Georgia, you could very easily have a lot of black elected officials, but if the dynamics is folks vote more Republican than Democrat, then you get a lot of conservative uh, black people elected. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it changes how policy is structured. If conservatives are more alike, we're not going to spend a whole lot of the taxpayers' money on a lot of things, then that's going to be how the policy is driven. If you have liberals get elected and they want to spend every tax dollar they get, that's how policy is going to be dictated, right? You know. And so with those windows opening, right, with these numbers changing, we African-Americans need to take advantage of that. And we need to build coalitions with Latinos and Asian-American Pacific Islanders to build a country that all of us can really, really thrive in. Because if you control the political climate, you could have a say-so in a financial climate. And that's the other significance about these numbers, right? Because if you look at the commercials, you look at the consumer bases, Black people have been one some of the best consumers on the planet, right? And so now, if you look at how certain dynamics are changing, you're getting Black people in positions to make the decisions about a lot of these companies and what direction they're going to go and how they're going to cater to those markets and how they're going to open the door for more people of color to be in positions, right? So just think about that. Just think about that and think about what you can do to make those numbers mean something for you in your daily life and for your community. If you wanna have a voter registration drive, if you wanna do a voter education project, if you, if you wanna get engaged in stuff like that, then do that because the window of opportunity is there. And for all those folks who said, well, we can't do this and we can't do that, the numbers suggest otherwise. We just have to take action to give those numbers some true substance. Until next time.